Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, where we talk entertainment, music, books, foodies, and more each week with special guest interviews of interest to the LGBTQ community and our straight allies. Direct from the entertainment capital of Northeast Ohio. Northeast Ohio. Your host, Scott Fullerton, chats with some of your favorite entertainers, celebrities, newsmakers, and behind-the-scenes people across the country and around the world who make it all happen. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, and let's start talking. Welcome back to the podcast for our very next interview here on the Left of Straight Show. I'm your host, as always, Scott Fullerton, and today I have a special treat for y'all. Our guest is the phenomenal Scott Evan Davis, a New York City composer and lyricist whose impressive journey began as an actor before transitioning to composing in 2010. Scott has gained global acclaim, leaving indelible marks in musical theater and cabaret. Not only that, he's become a social media sensation with his snarky thoughts over my favorite elixir of the gods, coffee. With compositions performed at illustrious venues like the Birdland Jazz Club and the Kennedy Center, including world stages in Australia and London, his albums have featured fantastic Broadway luminaries, and his influence in the realm of music is undeniable. His compelling composition, If the World Only Knew, has resonated with hundreds of thousands on YouTube, while his musical Powerful Day has touched hearts, notably those of autistic children across the country. His amazing musical Indigo played right here in Ohio just a few months ago, and I can't wait to deep dive into all this and so much more. So please welcome Left of Trade Show for the very first time, Mr. Scott Evan Davis. Scott, how are we doing, sir? Doing really good. That was a lovely thing to listen to. Thank you. Well, you deserve every accolade, my friend. Thanks so much I for know. coming on the show. <laughs> How is everything in beautiful downtown New York City? <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's been, uh, I have to say, it's been a little, um, I think I've been feeling a little guilty lately just because the weather has been really good here. And I know that is not what a lot of the country is dealing with. And I've just been, I know it's going to change, but I've just been sort of enjoying the there bit of a reprieve we've had. But it's nice. It's New York. I know? like it. I'm Northeast Ohio, about six and a half hours away on the PA border. And we've had our big highs of 85. So I'm not complaining at all. Yeah. Well, the five weeks that I spent in Dayton were the weather was perfect, like every single day, almost. Until oh, the day that I left, and then there was a tornado. I was stuck in an olive garden, and there was a tornado that was forming. And I was like, "This is how I'm going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to die in Dayton in an olive garden. <laughs> that's how it's going to happen." <laughs> but at least you had a limited bread sticks and salad before. I know so that's what my mother go, said. Right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, so much fun! Well, it's an honor to have you on the show, my friend. Like I said, I'm a huge Broadway fan. I've been loving your TikTok videos for the last couple of years, but I always start with. Two questions of every uh, virgin on the show. First is, uh, where did you grow up and what kind of a kid were you growing up? So I grew up in New Jersey, a little small town in central New Jersey. Uh, and I was a weird kid. I really <laughs> was a weird kid. I, when I was real young, like 
six, seven, eight, I was really kind of obsessed with witches and vampires and werewolves. And I was the kid who had very few friends, but who wore this like black sort of velvet cloak uh, in the dead of summer at like eight years old, going to my brother's basketball game. Like that was me. That was me. And then I actually found um, a huge passion of mine at the time through my grandparents, which was bowling. And there was a few years there I was training to be a professional bowler. Uh, this is true. I would go to Atlantic City on the weekends. I was on four leagues. Like I was, my grandfather was a great bowler. And so that's sort of what I thought I was going to do. And then I found theater when I was about 12. I, did, I was cast in my first show. And I think the bug was just like everything else sort of went away. I think I was a cartoonist too. I was drawing a lot. Um, I wanted to do a lot of things. And then um, when I found theater, I sort of landed into, into that. You and I didn't start. And now you're roped into being just a composer, lyricist, Broadway guy. And the funny what? thing is I did not grow up wanting to be a composer at all. I actually taught myself how to play the piano starting at 11 years old. Like I've never had a lesson. I just sort of taught myself. And I got obsessed with doing that. But I never wanted to write anything. I just wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to be an actor. And I didn't write my first song until I was 31 years old. 31. And it hit me. That's a whole different story. But um, yeah, it was not per in my purview at all growing up. It was just to be a performer. So it's a little ironic that now I just say funny things and, and write songs. But hey, I'll take it. There you go. It's a dirty job, but somebody's <laughs> got to do it. I it know. is. It is. Right, and question number two, uh, you're a proud, out and proud performer, and you have a beautiful husband. I do. Talk about when did you first come out to yourself? When did you kind of uh, first think you found your tribe in the LGBTQ community? So I always knew it was not a question. I'm not somebody who struggled with it. I'm not somebody who found that there was some nebulous sort of thing that I, like, I just knew. I, I remember being six years old. And I was sitting at a, I think it was a basketball game that my brother was sort of playing in. And I just remember looking at all the guys like running around, like, you know, I was six. So they were, you know, their teens or something. And I just remember I was watching them all run around. And I remember having this thought to myself because I was very like isolated. I would sit by myself. My mom and dad were sort of someplace else. And I remember just saying to myself in my own head, looking out at this, like these people playing sports, I was like, yeah, I'm different. In my own head, like I had the self-awareness. I was like, I don't think I knew what the word gay was, um, but I just said, yeah, I like this or something. Um, I came out when I was 11 to my friends and family and everybody. So I've been out for a very, very long time. That's amazing. And when do you and, think you first started finding your tribe? Was it when you got into the theater community? Was it beforehand? No, it was definitely when I was cast in my first community like professional, well, I say professional, but I guess it was like regional slash community theater. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you sort of just do school shows. And there was a theater company in my one of the neighboring towns that was really reputable. And my father, um, rest his soul, but my father, uh, his job, he had his own business and he fixed copy machines. It was, he had his own sort of like, I don't know, business where he would go and fix people's, you know, photocopy machines and toner and things like that. And he had a contract, a client of his was this, the Strand Theater is what it's called. It's in Lakewood, New Jersey. And uh, he found that they were auditioning for Oliver. 
and um, I wanted to audition. And I think he probably, I'll never know because he's not here. I can't ask him. But I think he, because he was involved with like the people who ran the theater, I think he was like, listen, my kid wants to be in the, you know, can you, can he audition? And I actually did. And they were, they were blown away. And, and, and I was, you know, I sang something and I was cast. It was my first sort of like big role. Uh, but it wasn't until that point in community theater that I think I found, because, you know, they always have to be older than you. They always have to be like a year or two older than you and not part of your school and like an outside. So I found a bunch, and it was Oliver. So a bunch of people my age and a bunch of cool adults. Like it was, it was cool. That was my tribe. Nice. And you say you taught yourself piano and you just naturally came to this. Were you always like tapping on something when you were a kid or where did no. that come from? Musical so, influence? My father was a fantastic drummer to the day that he passed away. He was like a wonderful drummer. Um, so I didn't have that instinct. Uh, my mother wrote songs and sang. And I sort of grew up listening to her and her little band and sort of singing and stuff. Um, and I, you know, um, I went to school. There was one day at school um where you could choose it was elementary school but you could choose different workshops so for the day they were have these like 45 minute periods but you could choose what you wanted to do like you could sign up for pottery you could sign up for puppet making there was music there was archer i don't even remember anymore what it was but i remember being like well i'll do music and this was back before people had whiteboards it was like an actual chalkboard with chalk and there was this old woman, no idea what her name is, but thank you. She, she was standing up in front and she was, and there was a piano in front of her. And she sort of was talking about the piano. And she was like, one thing you need to know about the piano and music is there's only eight notes in music. And she said, and they just keep repeating. And my piano's right here. But she would like, she would say, you know, this is a C. And she was like, you know, and she said, and she would C to C is eight notes. And I just remember listening to her and she likes really very rudimentary, like really pared it down to that. And I just remember listening and I said, is that all it is? I mean, if it's eight notes and they just keep repeating themselves, how hard can that be? And so I was obsessed with the Wizard of Oz and my father's getting a lot of shout outs. Um, he'd be very happy, but he knew how obsessed I was and he knew that I had started and he had gotten me a piano lesson. And I, I remember his name was Jerry or something. And I went and took like one lesson and I just felt like I needed, I was very autodidactic and I really needed to sort of like do it on my own and like learn myself. And he went to the store and he wanted to buy me the sheet music for the Wizard of Oz because he knew I was really interested and loved it. And that would be a great thing to do. And he brought home the score, like the actual, if anybody knows music, you have easy vocal piano, easy piano, like regular piano vocal, and then you have the score. <laughs> and the score is just, you know, a lot of it's handwritten, a lot of it was printed, and he bought it. It was like 60 bucks back in the day. And he was like, and he didn't know anything about like piano. And so I said, oh my God. And then when he realized it was like the most advanced version, he wanted to take it back to the store and like buy the easy ones. I, I fought him on it. I said, no, give it to me. So I literally locked myself in, in, in my room for the summer and I sort of taught myself how to play based on that. <laughs> it's true. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That is so cool. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but talk about you really came back to music um, after a teacher, uh, Mr. Assinger, kind of was oh, wow. around. Talk about that and what brought mm -hmm. you back 
to the love of music then? Well, just to correct a little bit, it's, uh, Brian Ashinger was a teacher that I had at the second college I went to. So the first college was Emerson College in Boston, and I transferred to AMDA here in New York City. And this was when I was still performing. And he was the musical theater sort of instructor there. He's a brilliant man. Wow, right into Brian. So you did your research. Um, I had. It's not that I had stopped music. I, I was just focused on performing. And I'm trying to think of how to say this con concisely. So I was in his class. And at the time of me being sort of in college, I was working like two jobs. I've been, I've been on my own financially since I think I'm 16, 17. And so I was always working and I, and I always was worried about survival, always. And I started falling asleep in his class and he really, really took me under his wing. And this is back in the day where I guess, you know, things like this could happen, but he saw me after class. He was like, you know, you fell asleep again today. He's like, do you have time? Like, I'd like to take you to lunch. Can we just talk, see what's going on? So we had a long heart to heart. And we sort of opened up to each other. And he had told me that he been diagnosed with cancer, brain cancer, and he didn't have long, like I think a year to live. And he said, nobody at school really knew, but he wanted to share this with me. And I shared a lot of things too. And long story short, he sort of took it upon himself to sort of like nurture me and teach me everything he could about acting and singing and theater and the business and getting my audition booked. He really wanted his sort of legacy to be, I have helped you because he really saw something in me as a performer. And so long story short, I ended up moving in with him because he was in the hospital all the time and I needed housing. And I ended up, it's true. It's like very Tuesdays with Maury. Um, I mean, it was always very friendly, very platonic, very professional friends, but we just became friends. And I took care of stuff when he was sick and in sort of uh, a trade-off, I would meet him in the hospital and he would sort of go over the songs I was working on at the time. And, you know, he was still trying to mentor me. And about nine months, I think, after living with him, I was in love with somebody actually up who lived in Boston. And so that became way more important. At the time, I was 19 years old. Love preceded all. And I ended up, I mean, sort of in the dark of night, but like I ended up saying, I can't, I can't stay. I'm going to go to Boston, move to Boston. And that broke his heart. I mean, that was just like, it really hurt him. Long story short, he passed away and I never got to sort of reconcile my guilt, meaning I really hurt him. He had given me so much time. I, he didn't have a lot of time left. And I didn't take that into consideration at 19 years old. And I just sort of followed what I wanted to do. He passed away. Um, I found that out later. And once I think I tried to contact him and I didn't hear back, I ended up moving back to New York. And then I, because I'd given up theater uh, to, to live in Boston and sort of work. And I, because of him passing away, I was like, this is a sign. I'm going to start performing again. I got my equity card. I did off Broadway. I did tours. And it wasn't until 10 years later, this is true, 10 years later, I was in an off-Broadway play as an actor, and uh, it was called Joy. And I was in a really miserable place in my life, which is ironic, but it was called Joy, and I had none. And I remember I had a dream about him, and in my dream, he sort of appeared on a park bench, and he hugged me, and he, it was very forgiving feeling. Um, but the entire time he was hugging me, he was humming this melody. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, 
forgetting about it, going back to sleep, and I couldn't get the melody out of my head the next day. And long story short, that became my first song. Um, and that actually became the lead, the title of my first album. It was called Cautiously Optimistic. And I dedicated that album to him. But I think he it was that dream that somehow ignited, oh, you're a writer now. Oh, oh, you're supposed to be a writer. And then it flooded. I just started writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. Um, and that's been what I've been doing ever since. Read that story and just fell in love with it because that's kismet. And now, I mean, like you said, you've been teaching forever now as well. How how have you been able to relate to that? It's like, isn't it tough not to fall in love with your students like that all the time and just no. to see what you <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, it's not. Um, no, I do fall in love with my students. Um, I, I do. I teach. See, it's so interesting because before the pandemic, I would go and teach for Brooklyn Children's Theater and other sort of group. I would go to schools. I would I work with the autistic community a lot, and I was doing that. And I would have a few private students. And the reason I didn't have more was because I would have to go to their apartments and I'd have to sort of look at the 10 block radius that they lived in in New York because I would have a car and, and sort of do it and then work. It was always like a couple students. The pandemic hit and I swear to you, uh, working virtually became, well, now I can do nine students a day, seven students a day, like from all over the world. And that's sort of been what I have loved doing and i mean just talking about like what's that like for me i think i'm sort of naturally a teacher i really love sharing information and i, I get really passionate and excited and i really think inspiring younger people to learn things about specifically musical theater and singing and, and music in general that um i love that they may not be exposed to. I mean, you know, I just taught a song from Miss Saigon the other day to a kid and they was like, what's Miss Saigon? I was like, let me tell you. And it was just, it's really nice to sort of like, I don't know, impart a lot of that. And I teach acting through song and I always incorporate what Brian taught me. And I feel like it's sort of a way that I can sort of have his legacy live on too, because I'm just sort of doing this dossier that he created a formula to act. And I teach that. So I don't know. It's life is an interesting. Um, it's an interesting thing. It is. I, I've become good friends socially for, with Michael Mott, also a composer. I know you're social media friends with. Yeah. So yeah, just and he kind of talked about the same thing. How the pandemic, I mean, how it affected everybody. I shut my show down for a year because nobody was entertaining for at least a year there. So yeah. I, we all had to find different ways to do things. Mm -hmm. So I love that it kind of. Um, kind of helped everyone. I think it was it's a reset, more, you know, it's more access to the people that maybe not didn't have that access before. Yeah. And you didn't have the time as well. So, I mean, it's kind of, nice and actually I work with um, a lot of, you know, one-on-one -on -one anyway, I work with a lot of uh, autistic performers and, um, and I'm sure the people listening may be wondering like why I keep bringing, you know, autism up, but it's been a huge part of my career and, and, and sort of the work that I do and the people that I can indigo and all of that stuff. But what I've noticed is it's great for everybody, the virtual thing. Um, I didn't expect to have the amount of students I have or the wait list of students I have or virtually. I just didn't expect it. I figured once the pandemic eased up a little bit, people would be like, great, well, are you in person now? Well, I don't teach anyone in New York 
every, all of my students are out of New York. But what I was going to say was for people with high anxiety levels and for people who have sort of like emotional anxiety and, and other challenges that they deal with on a social basis, it's a wonderful thing because people can log in and open up, but the anxiety of, of being face to face with someone and, and being there is really, really hard for a lot of people I've noticed. And uh, that's been an interesting sort of barrier that has come down to. I love talking about that. And I want to talk about all of your stuff. We're going to go into the one song um, that just kind of changed the trajectory of your career, I guess. Yeah. But let's go ahead and play it for everyone first. Then we'll go ahead and talk about it on the other side and move into other things. Okay. All right, guys, we are talking to Scott Evan Davis, an amazing uh, composer, lyricist, Broadway guy through and through, but also fantastic on TikTok and teaching. We've been doing all this stuff. So we're going to play uh, one of his um, songs that kind of goes out to a bunch of Broadway people, and then we'll talk about the other side, okay? You'll see the left of straight show right here. everyone we are back that was if the world only knew from my special guest today mr uh, scott evan davis scott i mean we're talking about how viral that song went we're talking hundreds of thousands of views uh, performed all over the world um what kind of feeling does that give you every time you kind of see that happen you know it's interesting um i wrote the song as the first sort of song that I wrote with a group of kids that I was hired to like write a musical with called Powerful Day. And I had never worked with the autistic community before. I'd never, you know, it was just a job that I interviewed for and I got. And I sat in a room the very first day of class talking with my notebook and I was taking notes and I was asking them what they wanted to write about or sing about or express. And one of the girls, Chelsea, who had been quiet for the whole class, basically raised her hand and she said, you know, I just, we want, I want the world, if the world only knew what we were, what we were capable of, everything would be much better. Something to that effect. I don't remember exactly. And I wrote down if the world only knew on, on my paper and I went home that weekend and I wrote the song. And I remember coming back into class on Monday morning because uh, I took the weekend to write it. And I played it for the teacher before the kids came in and she looked at me and she just had tears in her eyes and she was like, that's a hit. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it was not that kind of a song for me at all. I, I, it was just a song for the kid. Like I, 
And so we did it and it was lovely. Long story, I won't go into it, but actually Stephen Sondheim was involved too because he actually came to see one of the rehearsals in uh, uh, on the Lower East Side of these kids. And I had to play the song and all my songs actually, but play that song for him and he started to cry. So that was a really beautiful sort of moment for me too. But after the song, after that performance was over, I didn't put my second album out until years later. And I decided to put it on there with a 12 year old Joshua Cully, who has a good career now, but um, that was like one of the first things that like, you know, we were, you know, he had done broad, he was, I think, Gavroche in, 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 on Broadway in Les Mis, and I had found him and, and, and he recorded it. Incredible singer as a kid and still now. But it still didn't dawn on me as anything major. Like it was just a, a kid's song to me. I, so to answer your question, it, I, it was pretty astounding to me that it really took off and people started to wanting to sing it and choruses around the world wanted to do it. And, you know, I mean, Christopher Jackson, Kelly O'Hara, you name it, like the people have sung it, you know, and it really, it's, I'm a little desensitized now because it's happened a lot. But uh, it was pretty cool. I just sort of never really understood it. I never understood the allure or that the song had. But I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna question it. I just, it was, a, it was random to me. I just, it's funny what people will resonate with. It was just a very relatable sort of, hey, because it wasn't just the autistic community. It was, you know, there was um, a singer who was, um, you know, overweight, and 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 she had this whole thing about what it meant to her, and you know people coming out as gay or trans. I remember one person used it for that. And it was just this general relatable sense of just like, you don't know who I am until you know who I am. And if you knew who I was, you would feel different on the inside. And I, it's that, I think, that sort of emotion that re really, you know, became relatable for people. But look, if I could do something that karmically can have an energetic effect as a ripple for people, I mean, that's a beautiful, wonderful gift you know, in life. Speaking of karma, I mean, just the way your songs come about in general, that falling every day, the way that story I read and how you wrote that. Yeah. Just kind of uh, <laughs> as a practice that you've never done before. Talk about that story. That's pretty amazing in and of itself. Well, I have really bad imposter syndrome. Well, it's getting better because I'm in therapy, to, uh, to be honest. I'm in therapy twice a week. But um, I have had have imposter <laughs> syndrome. And part of that is because I've never been to school for what I do, right? I, I was just training to be a, an actor. I've never been to a music school. I've never learned how to write a song. I've never learned how to write lyrics. I've never been to the BMI program who, who trained music. Michael Mudd, I think, was part of the BMI program. But I never did that stuff. I was just sort of an outlier, an outsider who just sort of started doing it later in life. And because of that, and then when I would start to, like, I won an ASCAP award, I Broadway World Award, Musical Theater International Award, you know, and when that stuff started happening and I got all this attention, I almost felt like I didn't deserve it or people were being nice or people were, I don't know. I don't know. I had a good personality that people liked and that was helping me get, I, I would spin myself into oblivion every which way to Sunday, except for, oh, you're talented. That's why you're doing this. <laughs> that was never in my purview. That wasn't something I thought. Uh, to this day, I still don't necessarily think that. But I think with Falling Every Day, what happened was I got this TikTok sort of Instagram following. And I was going, this is when I was going live um, pretty much for an hour every day. 
And I did that through the pandemic. It was something creative to do. It was helping me. People seemed to like to listen to me talk. I had stories. I thought about doing a podcast and I never got that together. So one day uh, I started was playing, you know, people wanted me to play more because I forget that I write. I mean, I don't know if anybody's out there listening who's creative. Sometimes you forget that's what you do because I'm not the kind of person who has a bad day or has a fight with someone or, and then goes and writes about, like, I don't write songs about my feelings. I write songs about characters or when there's a reason to do it. So if you're writing a show, you have deadlines and you have characters to write for. If you think and you're inspired to write like an individual standalone song, like Falling Every Day or something, it has to come from somewhere. It doesn't just... Anyway, so I forget that I was right. And someone on my live once said, will you play the piano for us? I was like, sure. And so we talked about imposter syndrome. And I says, you know, what would be interesting is if, you know, in front of the hundreds of people watching, uh, in order to combat my imposter syndrome of feeling like I don't know how to write songs, it's true because that's how I feel most of the time. Maybe it would be really great in front of everybody to write a song. And I took a week and I would sort of went live every day and just had, you know, progressively finished it. And then uh, I wrote a song about having imposter syndrome. <laughs> so there you go. That's how that happened. And people really like that song. I like that song too. It's 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 a well, good song. All the songs I think are great. I mean, I listen to a lot of different things from cautiously optimistic. Oh, listen, yeah. I am a huge. I've been trying. My my goal in life is to get Derek Klena on the show. Not only because he's a good friend of mine. Of, I know that because I've listened to your song together. You guys uh, worked on it together. Oh yeah, we did a duet together. <laughs> I saw him at I Studio Fifty Four. I saw him at your Studio Fifty Four event. Oh yeah, and it's like because. I mean, not only is he talented as hell, obviously, not only do I love Moulin Rouge, I had another friend that was in Moulin Rouge, but he's, I heard, graduated from my high school in Cal Southern California. So oh, we wow. have this connection. So it's like, I've been trying to get a hold. Of course, he doesn't know me from Adam, and he's busy with a wife and a baby, but yeah. Can I just, just, just a little Derek Lennon love fest. Can I tell you how wonderful of a human he is? I'll tell you. He also did some stuff for Epic Players for me, too, but... I went to go see Moulin Rouge with my husband and my husband's family. And we were supposed to meet him backstage, but because someone had, the, there was COVID going through the cast and they had changed regulations and restrictions. So he like texted me before the show was like, sorry, dude, like I, I really would wanted to, cause I thought it would be really cool for him and his my husband and his family to like be able to have that experience of going backstage mm -hmm. or something. But anyway, so because he couldn't do that, because they weren't letting anyone backstage, he faced, like, we left the show, we walked, I wasn't going to wait, and he called and he FaceTimed before he even, like, went out to meet his Aww. fans or whatever, and, like, I'm walking down the street, and they all got to say hi and, like, congratulate him and stuff, and I was like, what a sweetheart to do that, so... We I love you, Derek Lennon. He's one of the nicest guys there on Broadway. Yeah, so yeah he's one of the nicest that. humans I've ever met in my life. It's true. If for some reason you guys ever cross paths, say there's a guy stalking you. I will. He just <laughs> wants to talk to you for an hour. That's right. all he wants. And I'm to find out if you went to the same high school. <laughs> yeah. I might not use the word stalked, but I'll, I'll word it how I. There, <laughs> I yeah. You might want to kind of soften it just a little bit for me. Right. I would appreciate that a lot. Right. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into Indigo, because I'm excited that it came. You said you brought it to Dayton. Was this yes. the world premiere here in Ohio? It or was. Talk about that. It, Give everyone yeah. an idea what the musical is about and what the experience bringing it to Dayton was all about. So Indigo is a story that I had actually thought of in 2009. 
no, eight, sorry, 2008, before I ever started writing anything. Um, it was just something that hit me, like I said, inspiration hits you, right? It was just something that hit me one day. I was actually on Fire Island um, and I was walking and, and a friend of mine and I just grabbed his hand and I said, indigo. Like we just, literally, we were just walking, not talking. And I just was thinking and I grabbed his arm or something and I said, indigo. And he looked at me and he said, beige, this is a game, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> and I said, can't you see that on a, mar so the next thing I said was, can't you see that on a marquee as, a, as like a musical called Indigo? And he was like, yeah, I said, I'm thinking, I, I wanna write a musical called Indigo. And he says, great, you don't write, but if you ever do that. So that was a kind of a joke. It was just this idea. And um, anyway, long story short, the musical is about a, it's a family drama. And it's really a story about three generations of trauma um, of three women. So you have the girl, Emma, who is a non-speaking autistic 17 year old who had always lived with her father and her father passes away kind of suddenly. And she has to go live with her next of kin, which is listed as her grandmother, Elaine. And Elaine um, has a daughter named Beverly. And so when the musical starts, Elaine is moving into Beverly's house with Beverly's husband, Rick, because Elaine is experiencing early onset dementia and she can't take care of herself anymore and she has to come live with them. And they have a very checkered history and relationship with each other. And I'm not going to go into the plot of it too much, but the one thing leads to another and Emma has to come live with them. Um, and it's sort of the story about how a girl who can't communicate teaches everybody else around her how to. And uh, the other really interesting thing is because she's not speaking, she sings her thoughts. So everything, sh she only sings in the show and everything she sings is, you know, we, the audience hears, but nobody else does. And she has synesthesia, which is, if anybody doesn't know what synesthesia is, it's sort of common in the autistic community, but not everybody who's autistic has synesthesia. And not everybody who has synesthesia has autism. But synesthesia is where you see um, sound as color, if anybody doesn't know. And there's lots of ways that manifests. There's different synesthesias. But in this case, for her, every time she connect, every time Emma connects with someone and feels safe around them, they're, they're a color for her and a texture. And um, there's no color for her mother. Um, she has a very, um, and, and also of other people in her life too. So long story short, it's all about her finding that connection and finding connections and, um, and learning new ways to communicate. Absolutely love it. What was it like bringing that to Dayton? What kind of theater was it? I haven't been to Dayton forever. Yeah, I, it was the Human Race Theater Company. And their mission statement, I can't say it verbatim, but I know it has to do with sort of like bringing stories of the human condition to life. And so this sort of really fell into their purview and, and, and into their wheelhouse. Um, it was a wonderful experience. It was probably to date the most fulfilling artistic experience I've ever had. So my book writer, Kate Kerrigan, who has a fantastic career in her own right. She's done a bunch of, she's been around a long time and she's done a bunch of stuff. Um, we, you know, we, we had a really great time. Uh, it was, it was an interesting thing because we had a huge workshop in New York city, November 19th, I think of 2019. It was right before the pandemic. And Betsy Wolf was 
Beverly and, you know, we had, we did a national casting. Oh, the other thing is, you know, I'm, the actress who plays Emma is autistic. So it was very important to find an autistic actress. We didn't want to sort of someone pretending. I wanted to find an autistic actress. There's so many incredible talents out there. So we did a national casting call. We found her. Uh, she's actually making her Broadway debut in the fall on another show, but good for her. She's amazing. Her name is Madison Cope. And so we had this big workshop on, in November and it was great. And we were ready to move on though all this momentum and the pandemic happened. So the fact that we were able to sort of, I have producers who love it so much, who were able to, after the pandemic, still create momentum and to get it to its world premiere, if not two years late, was wonderful. The human race was wonderful. They love nurturing new works. Everybody there was just incredible, talented, creative. The space was wonderful. The set was wonderful. Uh, we learned a lot. You know, we, we, we were limited in certain ways um, and, we, you know, excelled in certain ways. So it was a really great sort of first time out into the world. We got some really great reviews. The audiences loved it. And it was sort of a proof of concept. We sort of, the way the synesthesia gets represented with lighting, with projections um, is really beautiful. And we sort of saw what we could, and could do, you know, with, with an even bigger theater, with bigger budget. So we're very excited about the next steps. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Talk about, are we still working on, I, I read something about a song you wrote for Alzheimer's before I forget. Where is that? Is that anywhere right now? Or? It's an Indigo. Oh, it's part of Indigo. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, that's, gosh, I think I won, I think I won a Mac Award for that song uh, as a solo. I had put it, I had written it for a guy uh, Willie Falk, actually, he was one of the original Chris and Miss Saigons. He's an, a really good friend of mine. He's wonderful. Um, and he recorded it. Um, there's actually a really great video. We did a concert in London and someone choreographed this beautiful dance. So like me, I'm at a piano and Willie's singing it. And this beautiful couple is dancing. During, it was so gorgeous. If anybody wants to watch that, I, I always forget that exists. But anyway, um, it was a solo song for a long time. And then when, of course, the grandmother with dementia in Indigo became a huge plot point, uh, it sort of just fit right in because it's really about someone struggling with Alzheimer's. So it's, I have to tell you, Scott, <laughs> if I can call you Scott. Um, of just kidding. <laughs> I love your name. I think it's so interesting sometimes, like I find life endlessly fascinating because if you look and think about synchronicity and you think about following signs and following sort of what you prefer and your joy and, and, and just sort of leading with your heart, which not a lot of us get to do, but when you get the chance to sort of like follow your passions, it's always going to unfold in, in the most perfect of ways. But what was it, truly, that made me wake up one day and say, I want to write a song about Alzheimer's? This is before Indigo existed. And why? I didn't have, it wasn't a personal thing. It was just something I thought of. You know what I mean? It was like, this would make a really sort of heartbreaking song. And then just to sort of like have a piece that it can sort of be contained. If the world only knew it's the same thing. It, 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 it now exists in Indigo. For, for the time being, you know, if it, because things get cut all the time, who knows? But, you know, just these puzzle, these pieces, they just fall into place and you don't really know why or how. You just have to sort of trust somehow that it's all 
got to make sense. But yeah, before I forget is now um, part of Indigo, which it's a beautiful scene in the, in, in, in the musical. It's one of my favorites. It's very tragic. I have another <laughs> friend like that. And I, I, I call it a cosmetical life. I just oh, I kiss yeah. him all the time. And, and mm-hmm. I really truly believe that with you because I've read all these stories. Like I said, I did a lot of research. And yeah. It just seems like those things happen to you quite a bit. That's amazing. And I mean, you know, maybe they happen to all of us and I just sort of like I'm really aware of it. And some people sort of aren't necessarily that aware. I don't know. Um, I do think, though, that because I have always had these like spurts of inspiration, whether it was the dream with Brian or whether it was just songs or just ambition and overachieving like a sensibility to like want to do something bigger than myself. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, ego, ambition. I don't know what that is. All I know is like, it's always been very strong for me. And I think it's just because I've been so aware of connections and in the business, you have to network and you always want to lay foundations because you really never know when that, I mean, the way I met my producers for Indigo was wild. So I am a firm believer in, just trust your inspiration and event, you know, it will lay itself out. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's the older I get, the more I'm sort of noticing it too. I agree a hundred percent. Very, very nice. All right. Well, we have to start wrapping it up. So I guess we'll finish on this TikTok thing. Uh, social. <laughs> it's gotta be, I actually sewed about six or seven together. I'm going to play that real quick. Oh gosh. So we'll get an idea of this. And we'll talk about the other side. Again, guys, we are talking to Scott Evan Davis right here in the Left of Straight Show. We're back on the other side. Let's watch a little bit of the social media magic happening here, right here in the Left of Straight Show. Have you ever met someone and just thought, wow, I can absolutely see myself spending the rest of my life avoiding you? I'm sorry, can I stop you? Can you just take a couple steps back? I'm allergic to nuts. The most important thing you can have is patience. When there are too many witnesses, somebody told me that I twist everything that they say to my own advantage. <laughs> so I took it as a compliment. Have you ever wished that you were an octopus so you could slap eight people at once? I promise there is someone out there for everyone. For you, it's a therapist. Don't you think that the human brain is an amazing thing? I wish everyone had one. Someone asked me if I'm always this sarcastic. (laughs) And the answer is no. Sometimes I'm asleep. All right. That is the uh, sarcastic realism and loveliness of my guest today, Mr. Scott Evan Davis. My biggest, most important question on all this, Scott, is how the hell do you get all of these coffee mugs to match the shirts? That's the thing that I'm most impressed by. If a lot of people want to know. Um, it ha- just just so happened. Honestly, there was no correlation to it. I just remember, I, I am forever bored. I have ADD anyway, <laughs> but like things don't hold my attention. And for me, if I'm going to look at myself and, and do a video every day wearing something... I'm a very, very color-oriented person, hence indigo and, you know, but, but for me to see things that don't match, 
it hurts me. So I said, well, there has to be a way. I mean, I have a bunch of shirts. Let me just find one that. And then as I was going through, like, I just, it became a thing. I just couldn't sit there and do a video without matching it to my mug. And then the more mugs I got, like companies sent me mugs, companies sent me shirts. It was a very interesting sort of thing, but uh, my wardrobe and my mug collection went up exponentially. So it was great. I felt guilty. I got a blue mug just to go with my blue shirt today. There so you I go. Have, right. I have Poland Springs. <laughs> I was wondering about if you got sent these things. Like I said, they look fantastic. But how weird is it for you personally to come from the acting background to kind of stop performing overall pretty much and yep. go to the composing to now all of a sudden be known for being in front of the camera again, in front of a, a phone for 10 seconds. It's time. wild. Out of all the things in my career, in my life, that is the one I am most disassociated from because it was just a joke. Like, listen, am I funny? Maybe. I don't know. I don't think I am. But like, I, I like laughing and I like making jokes. I've watched the Golden Girls my whole life. I know sarcasm. I know timing. I get it. And it's just my personality. But the whole idea of, 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 of the amount of people that wa watch it. I mean, I just looked on Instagram. One of my videos, like 17 million views or something insane like that. Like all the housewives did sounds of mine. Selena Gomez <laughs> did a sound of mine, like Alyssa Milano. And it was, it's really wild because I, when you hear your voice on like cats and turtles and toads and trees and dogs, like, it becomes this thing. It's like, why? Just the way if the world only knew to, why? Why do you guys like that? It's very weird. You're all weird and twisted, and I love it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're owning it and having fun with it. I am having fun. Right, let's wrap it up. I mean, one of the things I loved reading about you is your house down to 47 plants and lots of cooking. Does that still happen? They're all – you can't see them now. They're hidden. But, yes, every day. Yes. I, I just it. spent an hour watering everybody yesterday. So, Yes. <laughs> Well, Scott Evan Davis, you're one of my favorite interviews in a long time. I appreciate you oh, taking thanks. the time, my friend. Let everyone know where they can find you on that social media and where they can find your fantastic website. Um, it's my name, Scott Evan Davis. Uh, a lot of people say Scotty Van Davis or Scott Evani. It's not. It's Scott Evan Davis. It's one word. Um, but that's what I am on Instagram and TikTok and threads. And my website is scottevandavis.com. And it's pretty, pretty easy if you know my name. <laughs> There you go. Well, my friend, you are invited back anytime. Thanks so much Thank for being you. on the Left to Straight show. We appreciate it. Stick around. We're going to do uh, five questions with uh, Scott in just a little bit. We'll be airing next Tuesday, so be sure to tune back in for that. As always, we appreciate you listening to the Left to Straight show. Have a great rest of your week, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Left of Straight Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast distributor and please give us a five-star rating so more listeners can find us. You can follow us on social media and be sure to check out our website, www.leftofstraightradio.com for contests and other news and information. See you next week.